And with Bolsonaro, uh, really uh, an asset that's shown through is that even though he was polarizing when it comes to his comments on, on women, uh, on, on other minority groups, what he oozed in when he spoke was authenticity. So even though uh, folks may have disagreed with some of his stances, what he came across is that he didn't talk like a traditional politician. He didn't say what was politically correct. And in a context of deep anger, that resonated. This week, we're joined by Chris Garman, Managing Director for the Americas at Eurasia Group. There is really nobody out there I'd rather have on to talk about Brazil than Chris Garman. He knows the country extraordinarily well. And what's also really helpful is Chris's the ability to put it in broader comparative perspective. So Chris, you were very early on in your coverage of Brazil of saying that Bolsonaro was to be taken seriously. I remember reading some of your notes and research really early on when most people didn't really uh, know much about him or, or take him very seriously. Uh, and, and you said pretty early on, no, things have changed. The dynamics have changed. What happened? Sort of how did uh, the Brazilian political system change so rapidly? And how did we end up with a president of Brazil who is somewhat outside of what we would think of as kind of the mainstream of, uh, of political parties and, and ideology in Brazil? I mean, you know, we, you know, very early in the process, um, maybe didn't necessarily pick who was going to win the election, but we had a, a strong um, assessment that what we were seeing in public opinion polls in Brazil was really symptomatic and uh, similar to what we're seeing in many other countries. You know, the levels of disenchantment against Brazilian political parties, the leadership, let's say key institutions like the judiciary, was really at, at sky-high levels. Um, this is a trend that we've seen not only in 2016 in the elections in developed economies uh, across Europe and the United States that led to the election of Donald Trump and Brexit and the Macron victory in France, the weakening of Angela Merkel. But what we saw in key Latin American markets and in Brazil is that the levels of disenchantment uh, were higher than what the same metrics were showing prior to the 2016 election cycle in developed economies. The roots of the disenchantment are a bit different, right? So if the storyline in Europe and U.S. is of a lower middle class that felt left behind, in Brazil it's really a story of a middle class that had a tremendous ascension during the commodity boom years. The issues that voters cared about shifted from economic survival to quality of public services. So middle class families came out of poverty. They started worrying more about quality of education for their kids, health services for their family and security. And what was new in this election cycle is that for the first time, voters were linking corruption with the inability of policymakers to deliver on these services, right? Obviously, the uh, four years of the Lava Jato uh, cor corruption probe played a role. Uh, you know, coming out of a deep recession obviously was a, an important driver as well. But what we were seeing is something that runs deeper than both of those specific events over the past couple of years. It has to do with the phenomenon of frustrated middle-class expectations. And when you look at the levels of disenchantment across Latin America, they're also very high. We saw the same trend in Mexico and some other, other key markets like Peru and Colombia and Chile. Our uh, analytic focus was, okay, who's better positioned to ride this wave of anger and disenchantment? And when we were looking at Bolsonaro, he was hitting on a couple of the key notes. He was strong on corruption. He was strong on the issue of security. And equally important, the candidates of the main political parties were not aligned to those demands, right? So it was really kind of a lack of a good alternatives. 
and the fact that he was um, striking and hitting a keynote and demand of voters. Of course, the real question now is, where do we go from here? Well, so we'll, we'll get to that uh, for sure. But first, I want to do a little bit more digging on, on understanding the, the sort of how did we get here. So you talked about these disenchanted middle classes. Um, but why did they turn to, to Bolsonaro? You mentioned a, a few sort of things that were appealing about him, the feeling that he uh, basically had no tolerance for corruption. I think that that sense is, is a pretty credible one. What about some of the liabilities that he has uh, that didn't seem to matter, right? You know, part of Brazil's story uh, over the last couple of decades is this emergence as a vibrant uh, multicultural democracy. He seemed to run sort of squarely against that, but these sorts of things didn't, didn't seem to matter. How do you just put in context the, the sort of assets that he had, which I think are clear, but why did those liabilities uh, not really matter in the end? Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, you know, this was a highly polarized election. Bolsonaro is a controversial figure. He has come out with statements uh, that antagonize uh, women. You know, he has a, a conservative social policy platform, uh, which, which um, based on very strong family values, and as a result, um, you know, his stance vis-a-vis, you know, minority groups, uh, gays, lesbians, um, uh, you know, was antagonizing for, for, for a segment of the electorate. Uh, and as a result, you look at his negative numbers, uh, you know, there were close to 40% of the electorate that rejected him, right? They, they were not willing to endorse him. But the thing we had to remember is that um, even though we had the election of, of leftist administrations in the Workers' Party, Brazil's electorate is still, from a social point of view, relatively conservative, right? So I think it would be a mischaracterization to, to say that we had a, a majority of voters um, who were uh, aligned with a socially liberal policy platform. In other words, the roots of the PT success weren't necessarily tied to their social, socially progressive uh, views. And what Bolsonaro, uh, really a, an asset that's shown through, is that even though he was polarizing when it comes to his comments on, on women, uh, on, on other minority groups, what he oozed in when he spoke was authenticity. So even though uh, folks may have disagreed with some of his stances. What he came across is that he didn't talk like a traditional politician. He didn't say what was politically correct. And in a context of deep anger, that resonated, right? And so when you look at the, at the female vote, uh, he performed pretty well. And so really what was the, the, the main driver of this election is that, is that voters wanted something different. They were fed up with politics, fed up with the way uh, of the traditional parties, how they ran things. And he really was the only candidate in the field that represented that true change in that sense of the word. Some of the parallels there between the 2016 election and, and the U.S. And, and the Brazilian election are, are I think, pretty fascinating. I mean, I wouldn't want to over... Uh, state the analogy given the difference of the context that you talked about at the start of our conversation, but still, I think some really interesting parallels there. Uh, so, financial markets have treated the election of Bolsonaro quite positively, rallying as it looked close, uh, as, as it looked likely that he would win, rallying even more sharply after the first round win, uh, and generally pretty pretty solid since then. What, in your view, Chris, will it take from a policy perspective to sustain that positive outlook from the financial markets? The key issue that is going to dictate um, you know, asset price performance and whether this rally continues over the course of 2019 certainly is the capacity uh, of the administration to deliver 
some version of fiscal reform, right? Brazil's largest macroeconomic vulnerability uh, is a tremendous uh, fiscal deficit. Brazil's running a primary fiscal deficit of about two percentage points of GDP. They need to deliver a primary surplus close to 2% in order to be able to avoid your net and debt gross levels from continuing to rise. Um, that's a pretty significant, that's a 4 percentage point of GDP uh, fiscal adjustment. And the only way to deliver that uh, is through tackling constitutional reform that addresses very generous uh, pension rules and benefits. And, and to do so, you need a constitutional majority uh, to get a reform done of three-fifths support uh, in the lower house and also uh, in, in the Senate. Uh, and the big challenge for Bolsonaro is that he won on the platform of promising to change the way politics is done. And in practice, that translates to a promise not to distribute cabinet positions in order to be able to construct a congressional coalition, right? The traditional pork barrel politics of the past, he has argued, uh, was a recipe for corruption. And so that's exactly what made him popular. So the challenge is how do you create a congressional coalition if legislators are asked to vote on unpopular measures without getting anything in exchange, or at least in getting this, the traditional benefits that they got in the past in exchange? That is the big uh, challenge of this administration. And, you know, we expect him to be able to deliver something, but we certainly don't expect a very ambitious pension reform proposal getting done. Uh, because he has this key vulnerability in his relationship in Congress. And so I think market participants are expecting something to get delivered, but the big question mark really is on execution. Uh, it's not whether this administration will try to deliver on a constructive market-friendly agenda and, uh, and, and kind of address pension, uh, this pension deficit. It's really his capacity to get things done in Congress. So market sentiment going forward really is just driven by the outlook for fiscal reform, and the key part of that is pension reform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, market participants are looking at policy direction of this administration, right? There is a, there is a component here um, where there is a, there's still a little bit of a debate and doubts over how earnestly committed is Bolsonaro to a market-friendly agenda, right? We have to remember that Bolsonaro is a legislator in the lower house. Uh, he has been in the lower house for 28 years. And you look at his track record of voting, it isn't particularly encouraging. He was against the privatizing, privatization of state-owned enterprises. Uh, he said former President Cardoso should be shot for his, his, uh, his support of, the, uh, of privatizations. He didn't support the rail plan. He didn't endorse President Tamer's pension reform last year. And so a lot of the critics suggest that, well, you know, Bolsonaro really is a nationalist and, and state interventionist. And uh, even though he dominated a very market-friendly economic advisor in Paulo Gadges, who's saying all the right things, when the going gets tough, Bolsonaro will go back to his roots. I don't endorse that view. I think that folks are underappreciate, you know, that the conversion towards a more market-friendly economic agenda was slow in the making over the past two years. He was influenced by his son. He was meeting with economists for about a year and a half before nominating Paulo Gadges. So I don't think that the agenda rests exclusively on the personality of his chief economic advisor. Even beyond that, if you look at the rest of the, the economic team, the appointees so far, I mean, it looks like a University of Chicago reunion. Yes, absolutely. You have uh, Joaquin Levy to head the, the, the presidency of the National Development Bank. Um, uh, you know, you also have, uh, you know, the head of, the, of Petrobras, a very market-friendly 
kind of economist that was just appointed uh, today. Uh, some of the, the key uh, policymakers under Tamer's administrations were invited to stay. Monsuetu Jalmeida, the Secretary of Treasury, ended up staying. So the, the names look very good. And I think it's it's not just because of Paulo Gadges' influence, but it's, it's, I think that the president-elect is aligned to this policy. So I think the agenda is going to be a good one. And you know, I think that what we'll probably see is that markets are, will react constructively to s confirmation of this agenda. And as you get a little bit more meat to the proposals, I think there are going to be good proposals on the table. So there will be some room for um, for kind of a, a parts of the market reaction over the next couple months. But the real rubber is going to hit the road um, when you look at the capacity to deliver fiscal reform. That's, that's really the, the most important variable here, I think, for a sustained rally in 2019. Interesting. So good agenda. Markets focused on two potential constraints. One is whether or not Bolsonaro actually has a degree of commitment. You say, yes, don't worry about that. The second one, which is the ability of the president to manage a congressional coalition to get the stuff passed while saying that he's not going to play the typical pork and patronage game, you're pointing to is the much more serious constraint. So that's where we, where we pay attention. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm sure you're very well aware, right, Alex, and with all the work you guys are doing, is that the global backdrop is going to be important here. Because the key question is, how much will Bolsonaro have to deliver? Is he going to have to deliver a deep fiscal reform? Or is a watered-down version of pension reform enough, right? And, and, uh, and, the, and the global backdrop may be important in dictating uh, what is the requisite to deliver in 2019. Our own view is that he's going to deliver something but it's not going to be an ambitious proposal. We just don't see political conditions to getting this done in Congress, not only because this is um, a, uh, a president-elect who is unwilling to play the traditional game, but you look at the profile of the new Congress, it doesn't look very reformist. Not only did the election bring an, an unconventional president, but uh, half of the lower house lost their seats. Um, so you have 50% renewal of the lower house, and of the 33 senators running for re-election, re only eight uh, one re-election. And the bad news is that the legislators who were supporting market-friendly reforms lost to a greater degree than those who ended up winning their seats. And you look at the profile of who's coming in, these are socially more conservative guys or and, and women, but uh, they're not necessarily more market-friendly in endorsing uh, market-friendly reforms. So it's not going to be an easy environment to operate in. So, so that's an interesting point. You basically said, we're going to get an okay, you know, it, we'll get a pension reform, it'll suggest some savings, it's in the right direction. But one thing that you and I have talked about over the years, when you look over the history of emerging markets, what are the conditions where big structural reforms get done? And one of the things that I think you and I both generally agree on is that most of the big breakthroughs in the history of emerging market reform have come when that external environment is poor. Right, the market constraint, the sense that a crisis breeds opportunity and gives political cover for, for politicians. In the Brazilian case now, do they look at market discipline as something that would push them? In other words, if we get a market reaction that suggests that, it's, that, that the reforms look insufficient, um, does that change the incentives of Bolsonaro and, and of the key people in Congress? Or is this just sort of the reform that we're going to get, irrespective of, of how the market is pushing them and giving feedback? If the question is, will legislators in Congress be re receptive and, and, uh, and react to constructively to a very negative market backdrop in which 
it becomes very clear that the inability to deliver a deeper fiscal reform can have significant consequences from asset prices and the outlook for growth. The answer is yes. I think that that could help in pushing a more aggressive fiscal reform on the table. But the timing of when a potentially negative global backdrop comes matters because we could easily be in a scenario where you know, the administration comes into office on the 1st of January. Uh, I think they have to act very quickly because the honeymoon period of Bolsonaro is going to be short. Uh, voters are deeply disenchanted. They're angry about public services like security, health, and education. It's unlikely that those services are going to improve much, so the potential for frustration of expectations is large, and it's going to be a very highly polarized environment. So Bolsonaro will have to move quickly on something on pension reform. So you could get a scenario where you end up getting a very watered-down version of fiscal reform uh, done in the lower house in the first half of the year. And then if the global backdrop goes very negative later, second half of the year or, or in early 2020, and then you have to ask the administrations go back to the well to approve a more ambitious pension reform, I would be more concerned. So if the global backdrop is going to get worse from a strictly Brazil perspective and a local political perspective, it's better that it happens early. In other words, the ideal scenario is the global backdrop gets worse early next year, and then Congress is voting their fiscal reform um, in a context where Brazil's finances have their back against the wall and investors are really reacting strongly uh, to the potential for only a, a slimmed-down version of pension reform. What we're hearing from our clients is as long as they deliver something very watered down, that's okay. You just need a headline of progress on reforms, right? So there isn't a acute market constraint right now to deliver something ambitious. But if that changes uh, before the vote, um, it could move the needle. Interesting. So one of the you know, we've been talking in, in general terms about the external environment, but one of the key variables there is, of course, the U.S.-China trade war, um, which Brazil is sort of a, a you know, not a, an uninterested bystander there, um, you know, massive uh, trading partner with uh, China and trades a lot of things that the U.S. also trades with China. I'm thinking agricultural commodities and, and soybeans. But I think one of the hallmarks of the Lula administration's foreign policy was deepening those commercial ties to China. This is something that uh, you know brought some criticism, um, but in general, I think was seen as a way for Brazil to expand its markets. Mm -hmm. Bolsonaro has suggested you know more Trumpian views toward toward China, if you will. Um, is that just rhetoric, or do you actually think there could be some reversal of the Brazil-China relationship? And kind of two angles to think about it. One is as an export market, uh, and the second is as a source of foreign direct investment in the Brazilian economy. Does Bolsonaro think differently than the PT regimes that we've had? Today, uh, he was praised and Brazil was praised by our former UN ambassador, who's now National Security Advisor, John Bolton, to President uh, Trump. And what he said today was... The recent elections of like-minded leaders in key countries, including Ivan Duque in Colombia and last weekend Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, are positive signs for the future of the region and demonstrate a growing regional commitment to free market principles and open, transparent and accountable governance. And that speech was about cracking down on what he called the Troika of Tyranny, and that included Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. I think we can expect a, a, a very different foreign policy approach, and, and I don't believe that this is just rhetoric. Uh, Bolsonaro 
uh, you have to appreciate kind of where he came from, right? He began his career uh, in the in the military as a young lad in the 1970s. He was formed in an environment where he was literally chasing communists during Brazil's military dictatorship. So he has a, a verdantly anti-communist uh, kind of DNA in him uh, that oozes in all the rhetoric that he has uh, over the course of his career as a politician, and it was a very important, um, you know, uh, mantle in his presidential bid. And uh, from everything we've been able to ascertain from kind of advisors very close to the president-elect, um, you know, he he's very suspicious of Chinese investments in Brazil. So that rhetoric has come out, but it is it comes from a a strong um, uh, conviction. And when you look at the foreign policy orientation and even look at the pick of the of the new foreign minister, Ernesto Araujo, he is someone within the Itamarachi Brazil's foreign ministry uh, that also uh, is aligned with a pivot towards closer ties towards the United States, closer ties towards some key developed markets in Europe, uh, Japan, not necessarily the European Union, but uh, but more towards a, a relationship with developed economies and de-emphasizing a South-South um, uh, trade relationship. But the issue of China is very big in the region because the U.S. sometimes obviously has competing interests with China. Um, in a piece from the AP, the headline, Radical Plans and Risks in Foreign Policy of Brazil's Bolsonaro, says this, Bolsonaro will also be starting his administration amid friction with China, which has invested billions of dollars in energy, infrastructure, and oil projects in Brazil. During the campaign, he complained that the Chinese are not buying in Brazil, they are buying Brazil itself. So the key is, okay, how does this translate in practice? Because China is Brazil's largest trading partner. Uh, they have conducted key investments in regulated sectors of the economy and energy, utilities, infrastructure. You can't necessarily shoot yourself in the foot. So I think that the, um, the fine line that Bolsonaro will try to deliver, at least as advisors, is how do you pivot to a closer relationship with the United States without undermining the commercial relationship to the point where it can it can lead to an economic blowback at home at a minimum what we should expect is a more adversarial and difficult investment environment for new investments in chinese companies i don't think that they want to undermine the commercial relationship and uh and they should be careful not to undermine the operational interests of chinese companies operating in brazil if they do that then we can get a negative response from beijing which would be kind of an economic downside the good news is in a context where China is engaging in a trade dispute with the U.S., Beijing will be more tolerant for negative rhetoric coming out of Brasilia, precisely because they don't want to close doors and other partners uh, in a context where they're, they're, the, the bilateral relationship with the U.S. is getting worse. But there are limits, right? So this is going to be a fine line that Bolsonaro is going to walk, but you can certainly expect a pivot uh, towards a closer relationship with the U.S. and de-emphasizing the relationship with China, but not undermining it entirely given its economic importance. Another traditional proponent of foreign policy in Brazil has been this idea of sort of non-interventionism, right? Um, you know, Brazil being very reluctant to intervene in in the internal affairs of other countries. Does that change at all? Do we see more willingness to insert Brazilian diplomatic and military uh, strength into regional issues, say Venezuela? Does Bolsonaro become more of kind of an ideological voice within the region? Uh, you know, both of those would, would push back a bit against the traditions of Brazilian foreign policy. And I know, you know, the foreign ministry is a very deep, deep institution, so not that easy to switch these things right away like that. Do you see 
Brazilian foreign policy changing in bigger ways beyond the relative pivot from China to the U.S.? I don't think that we're going to see a, um, a an interventionist foreign policy orientation that will lead to a larger propensity towards um, military action or or boots on the ground. And obviously, the the number one question in the region is what to do with Venezuela, right? And and uh, precisely as as we've been getting more questions of, is it possible to expect a a military intervention from the United States in Venezuela, uh, the election of Jair Bolsonaro, who is ideologically aligned with the with the Trump administration, um, you know, some chatter has grown on the potential for Brazil to participate in this exercise. You know, we think that's very unlikely. Uh, the Brazilian military is absolutely not aligned with a aggressive foreign policy approach where their presence outside of Brazil um, in these operations could grow. There isn't uh, support domestically, and I don't even think that the president-elect would be supportive of, uh, of, su- of such a role. What we will have is uh, certainly a, a tougher, hard-right foreign policy approach. Uh, I think that, that Brazil will be closer to Ivan Duque in, in Colombia. Um, they're going to take a harder stance uh, towards Venezuela uh, when it comes to sanctions. Um, you know, so I think that we're going to get a, a de-emphasizing of medical sul which is a, a customs union where you need a unanimity within the group to negotiate trade agreements. And so we're going to get a, a free trade policy orientation that tries to reduce the you know, restrictions that Mercosul imposes on Brazil to negotiate bilateral trade agreements. But it's not, it's not an interventionist uh, approach. On that front, I don't think we're going to see much of a change. Do you think we can get a U.S.-Brazil FTA, something direct, bilateral? I think that's going to be on the table, absolutely. You know, not only is there chatter that President Donald Trump could come to the inauguration, but also that Bolsonaro could be invited to Mar del Lago come March. And I think an FTA agreement will be on the table. In order to be able to do so, you're going to have to get an exemption uh, and a waiver from Medical School to be able to negotiate, which shouldn't be much of a problem. And, uh, And I think we will see headlines early next year that an FTA is in play. Whether you can get an FTA agreement uh, in a Bolsonaro administration, that's a different can of worms. Uh, we're a bit skeptical. Um, it's, it's not easy to negotiate an FTA agreement, not only in terms of the time it takes to move forward in these negotiations, but also to get congressional approval uh, in the U.S. But we do think it will make inroads. I think it will be in play, even though it's a little bit early to, to make a firm call that is likely. But I, I think we should, uh, we should expect these headlines uh, in the first half of 2019. So, during the campaign, Bolsonaro said all sorts of things, sort of expressing sympathy for the years of military rule in Brazil. He consistently sort of suggested that he thought that democracy um, didn't always work particularly well in the Brazilian context. But one thing that you have been saying consistently, all the conversations we've had and, and your, your written, your published research, is don't really worry about a democratic rupture. Um, Bolsonaro is committed to the institutions as they stand. Uh, If he runs into problems with Congress, he will work them out or change tack. So how do you think about the tail risks with with Bolsonaro? You've rejected the idea that there's a big risk of of a democratic breach here, Um, but there must be some things that come from his style, his ideology, that that, you kind of think of as tail risks or lower lower probability things to pay attention to. Kind of walk us through how you think about how governance risks have changed in Brazil with this election. The key takeaway here is we, we don't see much of a risk, you know, as, as you um, highlighted, Alex, to democratic institutions and, and the ability 
uh, Bolsonaro represent a threat to democracy. We think that's a that's a misplaced uh, headline. These type of risks usually occur in places where the president is very very popular. Uh, he or she uses that popularity to overcome institutional hurdles, either through a referendum, a constitutional reform, to centralize policymaking in the executive office. We've seen that s- script in Turkey, Venezuela, in Russia. Um, you know, we just don't see conditions for that in Brazil. Uh, this is going to be a very tough public opinion environment for for Bolsonaro. These demands are that voters have are difficult to deliver on. Um, disenchantment runs deep. We don't think he's going to have very high approval ratings from a comparative point of view. And Brazil's institutions are highly decentralized and, and relatively consolidated institutions in comparison to other emerging market economies. But what we can see for sure is institutional crisis. Um, this is a president that was elected on an anti-establishment platform, which means that he is very quick to undermine the credibility of other institutional actors. Um, in a context where voters are deeply disenchanted and don't have trust on major institutions like the media, like the judiciary, a political tactic in this environment is to undermine the credibility of actors that stand in your way. We have seen this in the United States with Donald Trump. It's hard to remember a president that um, tries to delegitimize the Department of Justice and the, and, the, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations here in the United States. But in Brazil, if Bolsonaro gets into trouble, I have no doubt he's going to uh, try to undermine the legitimacy of other institutional actors, be it Congress, be it, other, be it the judiciary, uh, if things get, uh, get tough. In other words, his reaction function uh, to a tough environment is unlikely to be constructive, and it can exacerbate the uh, the polarized uh, environment and institutional crisis. The the easiest pathway for us to get into a, a, a very nasty scenario um, is if he doesn't deliver any fiscal reform, you know, which we would handicap the odds of that occurring close to one to three. So if he doesn't deliver anything on, on pension reform in Congress from a constitutional point of view, Markets will react negatively. The conditions for growth will start to uh, be unwound. You're going to have a lower growth level. His approval ratings will start to drop. Um, And then he may start blaming uh, interlocutors. And that blame game may just kind of deepen the environment. He can... He'll turn his back against, uh, you know, relationship with the media. He's already been doing that with some of the traditional vehicles of the media. He excluding, for example, Folha de São Paulo, um, or calling them out as fake news, which is Brazil's largest leading newspaper, um, and not wanting to include them within press conferences, right? So, so if the economic environment goes south, and then he and he plays his hands, his cards in a in a uh, confrontational point of view, which is which is quite plausible uh, given the, the fact that his base doesn't trust these institutions, so it does play with his base relatively well, we, we, we could be in for a rough ride. Well, Chris, I was thinking as I was putting my notes together ahead of the call um, that you and I first met and first started having these kinds of conversations in early 2005 when I was a, a client of, of Eurasia Group. And uh, we've been having some form of, of this conversation about Brazil, about uh, its, its place in the world, about the broader outlook for emerging markets and, and engaging in some comparative uh, politics uh, for almost 20 years now. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation and great that with this podcast, uh, a lot of other people can join in and hear your insights on Brazil. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. This has been fun and uh, we'll do it again. Uh, thank you very much for the, for the invitation, Alex. And, uh, more than happy to continue to contribute.